Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. <clears throat> Today, I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is a home base for this podcast called WealthFormula.com. Lots of free stuff to get there. Lots of free books and downloads, etc. And the other thing that you can do there is sign up for Wealth Formula's Accredited Investor Club. Now, this is something that is important for those of you who are listeners who actually meet the qualifications of being accredited investors. Now, what is an accredited investor? It sounds like something you have to apply for, but in fact, it's not. It's something that you either are or you are not, sort of like being pregnant, right? You're not, you don't have to apply for it. You either are or you aren't. And that is uh, the definition of accredited investor is simple. You make $200,000 per year uh, for at least two years, or you do so uh, filing jointly, and then you have $300,000 per year for two years, or you have a net worth of over $1 million, uh, not including your overvalued home and assets, so that's basically it. If you meet those criteria, you are an accredited investor and you can go to wealthformula.com and sign up for accredited investor club because after all, who does not want to be part of a club? And in seriously, the reason to do that is because we talk a lot about concepts of creating wealth on this show. And you uh, may, uh, there's a good chance you may be an accredited investor if you listen to this show because we really tend to focus on things and problems uh, for people who are, you know, uh, either already in that range of, of wealth or uh, are getting close or at least aspiring to do so. Um, if you're there and you're listening, at some point, you have to get off the sidelines and take the leap, and that involves being part of a club and putting lazy money to use. So again, go to WealthFormula.com, sign up for accredited investor club. It's just called Investor Club, actually, but it is for accredited investors, and, uh, and then you will get on a, a call with me after that, and uh, we'll talk about more. We'll, we'll kind of go through the onboarding process for that. So um, other than that, the other thing I will tell you is for those of you even, you know, with or without the accredited status, there is another group 
that is sort of the inner circle, you know, and that is called Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is a membership. It is a brotherhood, a sisterhood, brother and sisterhood, that, um, that basically what we do there is we have a course that creates the uh, foundation for everything that, you know, everybody, we want everybody to be caught up with. And that's a course that's taught by some really smart people uh, in taxes and in real estate and uh, asset protection and all that stuff. And then we have a community, and that community uh, is a uh, community online for the most part, private Facebook group. We have a uh, online portal where we store more additional information. We also have probably the most popular thing, which is biweekly phone calls of our mastermind. Um, they are on Zoom, so we get to look at each other, which is kind of fun as well, so you can actually recognize one another and see each other. For those of you who went to the Scottsdale meeting, it's basically like that, but, uh, you know, on a regular basis. So check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Let's leave it at that for the plugs uh, before I start today's show. You know, it's funny. Um, I will say that today happens to be my youngest daughter, Clementine. It's her fourth birthday, um, as, as of this recording at least. It'll probably get released, uh, obviously, later than that, maybe next week sometime. But it's her fourth birthday, and, 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 and it just think about all the things in my life um, and in your life that have changed, you know, since you were four or five years old. It's insane. I was born in 1973, and I remember uh, being four, and I remember what the world was like then. I remember black and white TVs. I remember the lack of Internet. Um, I remember phone booths. I mean, all this stuff, it just, you know, it's, it's crazy how it changes, right? And our whole paradigms, paradigms for life and what our expectations are and what our reality um, changes dynamically. But, you know, there are some paradigms that seem to perpetuate uh, without question for centuries, you know, without being questioned. And, you know, it used to be, for example— that in most places in the world, the majority of places in the world, specific religions were mandated by the government uh, or whatever it was, you know, like a kingdom or whatever, to its people. And the heretics were, uh, were, were persecuted. Of course, it's not to say that doesn't exist in many parts of the world still, but the point is that a large part of the world, including us of of course, does not see that as a simple status quo or anything that's even acceptable. If you live in the United States, for example, you would feel very uncomfortable, no matter what religion you are, I presume, with the idea that the government got to choose your place of worship, who you worship, what you worship, what you ate, what you drank, and what you wore. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because it certainly wasn't the, that way and in, in, you know you you go back to Roman times right I mean the Romans basically changed religions based on who the who the emperor was I mean that's that's basically what it was right well again so why is that there are certain things like religion that are very difficult to 
to to change or that they're difficult to doubt? The answer to that, again, is that we tend to let outdated paradigms perpetuate without questioning them. They become part of a collective, conventional reality that few even, you know, that it doesn't even cross your mind to question them. And then one day, there's an awakening. And, you know, maybe that's from a technological breakthrough. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a a radical new idea like the United States of America. And the next thing you know, you've got the separation of church and state, uh, and that has become something that we now expect is our new normal. Now, why do I go into all of this? Well, I'm going to take a leap here and say that I believe that Bitcoin represents the first modern step in separating not church from state, but money from state. Now, I've been watching and studying this space closely, and I have come to the conclusion that Bitcoin is real and it's not going anywhere. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's not going anywhere. It is not a flash in the pan. It is not a, you know, a fad and Warren Buffett's wrong. It's not rat poison. When you look around and you see the infrastructure that's being built around Bitcoin, for example, at the institutional level, you've got literally the same companies For example, the Intercontinental Exchange that owns the New York Stock Exchange is releasing a cryptocurrency, uh, specifically Bitcoin exchange, right? Um, You've got smart money uh, that is starting to invest in the space, like university endowments, the Yale University Endowment, the Stanford University Endowment. Listen. This is really not, uh, I'm not really talking about price action here on Bitcoin because the reality is it doesn't matter what the price of Bitcoin is today. It's the value of what's going on and how it's going to change the world tomorrow. And that, when you think of what it potentially represents, makes it grossly undervalued right now. In my opinion, if you... If you don't take at least the time and study this and its implications, you're going to regret it. Um, Now, again, if you do that and you come away from it and saying, you know what? I don't buy it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm going to skip this episode. By all means, go ahead and do so. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I think this is something that is here to stay. And that's why I wanted to have... Today's guest on the show for a podcast interview. So this is a former Wall Street guy turned Bitcoin purist. I've interviewed him before on my cryptocurrency podcast, uh, Consensus Network. Uh, But today I'm going to have him back and I'm going to actually play this interview on both uh, the podcasts. His name's Tone Vase. And for those of you who don't know, he's again... A, basically a, a, a former traditional Wall Street guy, a trader. And now uh, he is 
you know, an absolute evangelist for the Bitcoin cause. And you're going to need to, uh, you're going to want to listen to this. You're going to need to learn about this. And you can learn a lot from this guy. So when we come back, we've got Tone Vase. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on, well, this is going to be on Wealth Formula Podcast and Consensus Network is Tone Vase. Tone was on Consensus uh, Network a, a, a couple of months back, and uh, that was right around the time when, well, I don't know if it was a couple months. It seems like time's going on forever right now if you follow Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies in general. But uh, at that time, uh, Bitcoin was hanging out around 6,500 and everybody thought 6,000 was the bottom, et cetera. And Tone came on to talk about, um, about Bitcoin and he was just talking about it to the Consensus Network audience. I'm bringing them back today and, uh, and I want to start from the beginning because this is going out to Wealth Formula Podcast as well. First of all, Tone, tell us a little bit about your background because you're coming at this from a different um, approach, I think, than a lot of you know Bitcoin people, which is that you you come from a Wall Street background. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I started out actually being a high school teacher in math and science, and I didn't like that. So after one year of uh, teaching people that didn't want to be in my classroom, I. Uh, Decided to make some money and uh, signed up for a program in financial engineering, not really know much about finance. I uh, got a degree in financial engineering and started looking for a job on Wall Street, but it was actually difficult. I had no work experience. Uh, that's also when I learned how to trade uh, around the same time. So I actually started trading first. And um, like most traders that, uh, like I would say like almost all traders, uh, the first portfolio you start trading, you end up kind of blowing it up by making too many stupid mistakes. Uh, that happened to me, though my mistakes, and this is the really funny part, is I ended up running out of money in my portfolio because I continued to short the real estate market. And this was between 2006 going into 2007. And just as I ran out of money in my portfolio, I mean, I had some profitable trades, but I'm like, this thing is going to tank. This thing is going to tank. I'm going to make oh. a lot of tickets. You know, Tony, I think our, our connection, Tony, I think our connection eventually, is. Eventually, like, just completely ran out of money. 
So I had to go get a job and that job was actually at Bear Stearns, as ironic as that sounds, the company that blew up about nine months later because of the real estate crash, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I got absorbed by JP Morgan and I've worked in that industry. It was actually a risk analysis industry for about nine years. And, uh, but throughout that whole time, I continued to trade. I had, I had a better job now. I was able to build up another trading portfolio. Uh, this time around, I was trading more profitably. I eventually quit that job in 2015 with a combination of investing in some businesses, uh, trading my own portfolio, and really enjoyed this Bitcoin thing, speaking uh, at conferences. And, and the end result is I now go around the world, continue to speak at conferences. I'm too busy to trade my portfolios, so I'm taking a little bit of a break. Uh, but I did start doing videos about trading and uh, looking at the price. And you were talking about the $6,500 area. I was being made fun of for about three to six, three to four months. People were making fun of me because I kept saying 6000 is going to break. It's going to go down. It's going to go down hard. We're going to fall at least 50%. And one was making fun of me until we broke 6000 and it fell 50% in a week. Uh, and after that, that, people weren't making fun of me as much anymore. Uh, but I uh, still make fun of the hair, though. Yeah, yeah. There and you go. Um, But anyway, so now I go around the world speaking at conferences. I, have, uh, I start my own conferences now. I did a conference in Vegas in January. My second conference is going to be next week in Malta called Understanding Bitcoin. And I teach people how to be better traders. You know, I teach them the mistakes that I used to make, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I started out, teach people technical analysis, teach them how to do chart reading. And uh, that's pretty much what I'm up to these days. So, Tone, what got, what was it about Bitcoin that got you so interested? I mean, you are a, you know, I, and you're clearly, you know, sort of, not only you're a hardcore Bitcoin guy, but you're a Bitcoin maximalist. But let's specifically, what is it about Bitcoin that has got you so um, convinced that this is something? So this is actually a great question. If you can read my shirt, let me see if I can move up here. I am in Egypt. I really hope my internet connection pulls up. Yeah, it's um, not been it, great. My shirt reads, <laughs> unconfiscatable censorship resistant store of value. And that is what got me interested. And it's actually in that order. The first time I ever heard about Bitcoin was from Max Kaiser's show on RT, where he talked about it as being a savior for WikiLeaks in early, early 2011, even before the Silk Road was launched. And because WikiLeaks got cut off from uh, Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal, and they had to find a way to get donations in order to keep their servers running. So that's an example of uh, censorship-resistant value transfer. Uh, the second example of that was the Silk Road case. Now, Silk Road didn't really interest me that much. I didn't even know about it because that, that wasn't part of my life, nor did I have a need for it. But what really got me interested was the word unconfiscatable. And I realized that Bitcoin is the only unconfiscatable asset humans have ever owned in our history when the Cyprus events happened of uh, April 2013, when the European Union decided to just confiscate 50% of your money that was sitting there in a bank account above 100,000 euros. Uh, that's when I realized that you need to have at least some of your wealth in something that is unconfiscatable. 
And this concept of unconfiscatable, it's, it's so hard for people to understand. I'm, I'm saying like humans, because like no, nothing in history, whether it's a human, whether it's an animal, it doesn't matter. Nothing you have ever owned has ever been unconfiscatable. And the word didn't even exist, right? It's still the word. The word unconfiscatable is not in the dictionary. Uh, about nine months ago, I was able to get the .com, unconfiscatable.com. I have a conference called Unconfiscatable. This word just does not exist in the English language because we've never had anything that was unconfiscatable. And I think when people realize this, uh, Bitcoin will really, really change the world. To me, that is the most important property of Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is also a store of value. What makes it a store of value is the fact that there will only be 21 million Bitcoin. And while I've always gone back and forth in my economic career and understanding, you know, uh, do we really need inflation? Uh, how is the government doing monetary policy? Is that the best form of running an economy? It seems to have been doing okay for the last hundred years. Look at all the global innovation we've had under easy money. So it's hard to deny that. And um, uh, look at how much wealth, you know, with the stock market. If you, if you, everyone loves to point to gold, like, hey, a gold coin uh, would have bought you a suit in the year 1900 and it buys you the same suit today. That's true. But if in the year 1900, you sold that gold coin, put it in a Dow Jones, you can probably own multiple suit factories right now. Maybe even have, maybe even have the money to buy almost every oh. suit in the world, right? Um, so uh, it, it's hard to, Sometimes it's hard to argue with the, you know, with the last hundred years of monetary policy. But after reading the book, The Bitcoin Standard, uh, Saifed Dinamus really changed my mind on the need for sound money like gold. Um, so I do believe Bitcoin is a great store of value. And this property of 21 million Bitcoin and Bitcoin's unchangeable monetary policy is another thing that continues to attract me Bitcoin, and hopefully other people. So, Tone, you know, it, it brings me to another um, question. I think, which uh, I think is a useful, a useful question to get perspective on. Which is, in your view, is Bitcoin money or is it a storage of value? Because it seems that even within the Bitcoin community, um, you know, we've got these guys who are on the Bitcoin cash and you know, all that, you know, the, the other guys who are, who are trying to make this skill into something that, you know, um, that can make it something that would really be a daily use type of thing, um, where it's money, or is it a storage of value the same way maybe you build a second layer on top of it and use Bitcoin as the quote unquote gold standard and you have, you know, some kind of transactions on top of the blockchain and a second layer. Not not that dissimilar to necessarily having like, you know, a dollar that was pegged to gold. What is it? What in your view, which which is it? Or is it still to be determined? No, it's both. It's both. The second layer scaling of Bitcoin is nothing like dollar being backed by gold. Uh, your second layer scaling of Bitcoin is still the transfer of Bitcoin. It's just uh, doesn't settle to the Bitcoin blockchain until later on when you want to close the channel. So you 
so it, it, it's, it's not a comparison of dollars being backed by gold. Uh, it's both, but in order to be really good money, you need to have the store of value property. I mean, the Venezuelan currency is probably the best money we have in the world by that by by the definition of uh, the Bitcoin cash people and the big blockers, the Venezuelan currency should be the best money in the world because as soon as you get your hands on the Venezuelan currency, you want to immediately spend it because if you hold it for even a few hours, it could significantly depreciate in value. So uh, that's not what you want from your currency. You want to be able to save that currency if you want to save it and not only have it not go down in purchasing power, but potentially go up in purchasing power. Now, does that mean you will be less willing to spend it? The answer is sure, you will be less willing to spend it if you have other crappier options to spend. But the moment you start earning a living in Bitcoin, the only currency you can now spend is Bitcoin. So if you're Tone Vase, you're constantly trying to spend Bitcoin uh, because that's how I earn a living. So, um, so that's a huge misunderstanding. Um, of course, it can be both, and the dynamic goes back and forth. There are instances where everybody wants to spend it. When the value of Bitcoin goes up and there is a lot of hype around Bitcoin, businesses want to start uh, pe people in general are getting interested. Those people own businesses. They want to suddenly start accepting Bitcoin. Also, when Bitcoin goes up, people are, that hold Bitcoin are richer, so they want to buy more things. So they want to spend that Bitcoin. On the flip side, uh, right now we're, what, in the 14th month of the bear market, 15th month of the bear market? So right now, it's, you, know, you don't really want to spend that Bitcoin because you think it's near the lows. And lots of uh, there's interest is dying out. Many of the businesses that started accepting Bitcoin a few years ago are now stopping accepting Bitcoin because no one is coming in and paying with it. Well, uh, and, and this is what I don't understand. When people say you have to incentivize people to spend your Bitcoin. Well, the best incentive to spend the Bitcoin is inflation. And uh, that's what the government does. Is that what you want? In fact, um, other forms of cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, Litecoin, it doesn't matter. All these other cryptocurrencies are is useless inflation on top of Bitcoin. So if someone is going to argue with me saying that Litecoin has a future in our cryptocurrency world, uh, what they're really saying is, I believe in inflation and the government has been doing the right thing for the last hundred years. I'm a believer in the Fed. I want inflationary monetary policy, and I will spend the money that is inflating the fastest. So therefore, you'll be spending that Litecoin because you have no reason to hold on to it. So you know you're you're clearly um, you know I think what you would call a, a Bitcoin maximalist for sure, right? And you don't you've you've expressed your dislike, uh, distaste, uh, or disbelief rather in a number of projects because even even projects that i think a lot of people would uh would call fairly um you know not uh exotic like for example ethereum um can you explain your perspective on this i look at some of these blockchain projects for example in the gaming world for example 
Um, there's a there's an interesting one that I, I I just think is an interesting project called Worldwide Asset Exchange, and it's solving fundamental problems that are unique to the world, uh, in that world, right? Of non fungible, uh, you know, items, things like that, cross border trade, and you know, basically tokenizing virtual assets, things like that. Isn't there isn't there a role? in uh for some of these projects uh you know other than just bitcoin or in if not why not well there to me so let's go back to the definition of a blockchain uh i've read the satoshi white paper many times the word blockchain is never mentioned Uh, the word blockchain is a buzzword it was picked up from the code where satoshi used the word blockchain in a comment describing the process of mining blocks with proof of work and attaching those blocks to one another, forming a chain of blocks he called the blockchain. Uh, The reason why the word blockchain ever became popular is because uh, some people didn't like the association of Bitcoin to, you know, the gray market like the Silk Road or WikiLeaks or, you know, simple protection of your own money. So they clung to this word blockchain without understanding what the innovation uh, that Satoshi invented. Satoshi invented an ability to solve the double spending problem in computers. Prior to Bitcoin, every digital message, every digital piece of data you ever sent was simply a copy of that data. Uh, With Bitcoin, you're able to actually send the data. That's all Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is the finite transfer digitally. The moment the the send button is hit, digital data called Bitcoins leave your electronic uh, system, whether it's your computer, your cell phone, whatever, uh, your USB stick, and it goes to another address that you have no control of. And that is what makes it unconfiscatable and censorship resistant. So... If some company is telling you that, well, first of all, that company, if if a company is telling you that they're using a blockchain, there are two fundamental things that you need to first investigate as a person listening to someone trying to sell you a blockchain. One of them is conceptual and the other one is technical. On the conceptual side, they need to convince you that a blockchain is needed, that you need unconfiscatable, censorship-resistant value transfer. Let me tell you where it's not needed. It's not needed in, say, things like real estate property ownership. Because unless you want to accidentally delete the ownership of your property, or you want to accidentally send the ownership of that property to your neighbor who now owns that property, or you want some government official to input into the blockchain the fact that he now owns that property and you sold it to him uh, and you treat that as unconfiscatable and censorship resistant, you are basically screwed with putting real estate on the blockchain, okay? Uh, It is totally not useful for most things. The only time it's useful is when you wanna have full control of that digital data and more importantly, it doesn't have a physical form because if it has a physical form, it's confiscatable. 
If it's confiscatable, your blockchain is meaningless, okay? Your real estate is confiscatable by someone with a bigger gun, okay? They can take that land from you. The government can take that land from you. Having it on a blockchain is meaningless. You know, if there was a blockchain 300 years ago in the USA and a Native American uh, comes to you and your home where your family has now lived in for the last 100 years and says the blockchain says that I actually own this land, what are you going to do? You're going to hand it over to him? No, you're going to say my family's been taking care of this land for 100 years. It's now my land, right? Like the blockchain doesn't help you at all. It's uh, totally useless. So that is, the funda that is the fundamental view of a blockchain. Now let's talk about the technical view of a blockchain. To me, the only blockchain that has proven itself to be uh, functional and actually um, abide by these properties of being decentralized, unconfiscatable, censorship resistant is the Bitcoin blockchain. All other blockchains just fail. They don't, they're all in my mind centralized. So if someone is going to convince me or you that a blockchain is gonna revolutionize something, uh, anything, right? The technical question you have to ask them is, what blockchain are you talking about? Because if their answer is any blockchain other than Bitcoin, I'm going to call bullshit. Because Ethereum is a centralized database that has already proven that they can reverse transactions. And it is not unconfiscatable. And very soon, it's not even going to be proof of work. It's going to be some database proof of stake. So um, the to me... Uh, the fundamental side, I, I can probably in 90%, 90, 95% of cases, I will explain to a company why they don't want, they, why they don't need and don't want a blockchain. And even if they do need a blockchain, if they're not using the Bitcoin blockchain for their purpose, uh, they're going to find themselves in a lot of trouble because their blockchain is going to hurt them in the long run more than help because it will turn into just another centralized database with all the disadvantages of a blockchain without any of the benefits. So that is, now people seem to demonize people like me that are using science and logic to explain why Bitcoin may be the only thing that will succeed uh, and the other two extremes, to quote my friend Giacomo Zucco, you have the no-coiner who thinks all blockchains are useless, including Bitcoin. That is your Noriel Rubini uh, and many of the others. And then you have somebody like Vitalik Buterin or anyone else that believes in an altcoin who thinks that Bitcoin is so useless and not revolutionary that they can sit down and in one hour create a better version. And that is a complete misunderstanding of what Bitcoin provides us. Right. So I think, I think the misunderstanding of uh, a lot of you know, at least uh, uh, people, what what you're saying and what you're saying is that Bitcoin, uh, as a Bitcoin maximalist, uh, you're not saying that there are not situations in which a, a blockchain uh, is not valuable. For example, you may have right now a very valuable project or idea, um, but it's being built on top of Ethereum. You're saying that, okay, well, first prove to me that the project needs to or benefits from or has some increased efficiency um, and uh, from using a blockchain. And if you do that, 
then build it on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Is that accurate? That is, that is accurate. And one of the reasons why Ethereum became so popular is that Ethereum did provide a use case for a blockchain. That use case was for all kinds of crazy ideas to separate uh, common people from their money. Uh, that's what the ICO boom was. Uh, so 99% of every single ICO I've looked at, um, I considered it a totally useless project. And uh, these people felt that they deserved millions of dollars of funding for their project. And because VCs and people that are actually smart uh, weren't willing to give them that kind of money, they went after the general public, you know, uh, that wanted to speculate and just sell the token uh, in order to profit. So what the Ethereum business model is basically to recreate Ethereum's because that's how Ethereum, the only reason why Ethereum even exists today is because I believe they sold an unregistered security uh, in order to fund the project. It's like, hey, we're going to give you this digital asset. Uh, you pay us a bunch of money and we're going to build this you know, digital platform. Uh, to me, this was immoral and illegal according to regulation and security laws, which is why I never participated in the Ethereum crowd sale and warned people that, hey, this is an illegal security that they're building, uh, that they funded to build it. And now their project has one use case and is to, you know, encourage uh, the illegal creation of securities. Uh, but the regulators are now starting to get a handle on this. And if you've done an ICO uh, last year, you should be nervous. Right. Um, so, so since the last time I talked to you, you know, I started following your channel channel. I also started following Tyler Jenks. You do a lot of, uh, looks like you do a lot of things together and have some interesting uh, perspectives. Um, and at the time that you were on the show and we talked about this before, it seemed like 6,000 was the bottom. Everybody was talking about 6,000 being the bottom. You and I didn't talk about price. We really just talked about the virtues of Bitcoin, et cetera. And so what I didn't realize uh, at that time, despite your, you know, your overall bullish uh, feeling towards uh, Bitcoin, is that you were uh, very bearish on the price of Bitcoin and have been predicting a big correction throughout that time, even though we'd already gone from you know, near 20,000 down to 6,000. What, what made you so sure that we hadn't finished that bottom? Um, so a couple of things, and um, look, I always wanted to be wrong. I want to I want to see Bitcoin go up. I didn't sell my Bitcoin at the top, even though I was talking about it. Um, I just held on uh, held on to it because I have a long term time horizon. Uh, for me, it was all about technical analysis. I've spent 15 years trading, and I've learned to trust my charts and probabilities. And it was while fundamentals had something to do with it. 80% of my confidence in the fact that Bitcoin was going to crash uh, from 6,000 down to three, and I still think that we're going to go sub 3,000 as well uh, sometime this year. And all of that has to do with the technical picture. Though I will say that right now, the technical picture isn't as clean. I was 80% sure from a TA perspective that because uh, between uh, between Bitcoin being at about 15,000 
to 6,000 over a six or an eight month span, uh, Bitcoin formed something in technical analysis we call a descending triangle. Trading a descending triangle is one of my favorite things to do in trading. And the descending triangle basically said Bitcoin was due for a big crash in October of 2017. So I put on a big short position in October of 2017. That position did not work out until November of 2017. So it took about a month for it to break down. Uh, but that's okay. You know, I didn't get my time perfect, but I got my price pretty damn well. So it was mostly about technicals, but fundamentals play into it as well. Right now, the technical picture is a little more 50-50. I am looking for a bounce back to 5,000. I wanna see a rejection at 5,000 and then go sub 3,000 from there. But from a fundamental perspective, while Bitcoin continues to strengthen and look amazingly good in the code, under the hood, it looks great. The perception of Bitcoin is absolutely terrible. And I think that the fact that people still believe in these old coins continue to drag Bitcoin down. I think that um, Bitcoin will not enter another bull market until Bitcoin separates from all the old coins. The day I see Bitcoin go up in price and things like Ethereum, Litecoin, Monero, Cardano, everything else continue to stay down or even better go down, uh, Bitcoin has some trouble. Uh, my best comparison to this is what happened after the 2000 NASDAQ crash. Uh, people don't realize that NASDAQ was at $5,000 uh, in, in valuation of all the tech companies when the top came. We did not cross 5000 again until sometime late in 2013. If you inflation adjusted, we probably only crossed the new all-time highs like last year in the NASDAQ, in the tech sector. So what, 16, 17 years it took. So imagine that. Uh, look, how much better is the internet in 2015 versus the year 2000? And yet the tech sector was valued about the same. And that's because in the year 2000, people believed in dot-coms that had no clients, no revenue, basically just a website, but it was trading publicly on the market for $100. They were just useless companies. This is how I see everything in crypto other than Bitcoin. And the NASDAQ was only going to recover with the good companies that were left. And I believe the same thing will happen in the crypto space. Only in the crypto space, it's simpler to me. It's just going to be Bitcoin. There is a small probability that one or two other cryptocurrencies or projects are going to be very valuable in the future. But when you have 3,000 to choose from, I am not in the business of guessing which three out of 3,000 it's going to be. I will ride the Bitcoin horse all the way back up, but until fundamentally that changes. Also, in the last bear market, like everyone was a Bitcoiner, everyone was a Bitcoin maximalist. 90% uh, of the people uh, were only talking about Bitcoin. 
Today, the average person believes in nonsense like Ripple and Ethereum and all this other junk. And the community is so fragmented today compared to what it was in the last bear market. And I think until the community realizes that the only innovation in the space is Bitcoin, and not only is that Bitcoin blockchain going to be the backbone of everyone that actually needs a blockchain, and the value of only Bitcoin starts to rise, it's going to be very difficult to end the bear market. So, you know, it, it's interesting. I see a lot of things happening at the macro level, um, you know, in terms of the news, right, uh, that make Bitcoin seem to inch forwards, um, at least in the mainstream. Like, for example, you have, you know, Wall Street involvement, the Intercontinental Exchange releasing backed, uh, its partnership with Starbucks, um, university pensions um, getting involved. Yeah, can I can I can I weigh in on that real quick? So BACT has been delayed for like the third time. Uh, no one knows when it's actually going to launch. Uh, the Starbucks is a little overblown. They were just an investor, like the investing division arm of Starbucks, just threw a little bit of money, probably because the people at the at the, at, at that side of the company are probably friends with people at the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, the Starbucks thing is was really, really, really overblown. It doesn't mean that Starbucks is going to start accepting Bitcoin. Uh, these two uh, divisions of a giant company have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And, and also, Bact isn't really going to revolutionize anything. Uh, Bact is just another exchange. In fact, I think it's a downgrade. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an upgrade technologically. Um, I mean, BACT has very smart people in the exchange space. Uh, they understand exchanges, unlike, say, Coinbase. Uh, I think Coinbase is a terrible company. They don't understand um, exchanges. They have no experience in it. Uh, but Coinbase gives you your Bitcoin immediately. Uh, BACT will only give it to you once a day. So it's not even an, any kind of an upgrade to what we currently have, other than simply more professionalism. So, you know, I know what you're saying. I, I, I get that there's, you know, uh, maybe some of these things aren't as a big deal as, as they may appear, you know, whether it's backed or Starbucks, all these things. But there's clearly some, uh, appears to be some acceptance at sort of the larger money, you know, the endowments are getting involved. You've got some more mainstream acceptance and the idea that maybe that Bitcoin's not a flash in the pan that's going to disappear tomorrow and maybe it's worth something uh, worth looking at something, which is admittedly, uh, you know, you have to admit, I mean, if you said that five years ago, you, you, people would be laughing at you, right? Um, so how do you how do you take those kinds of movements and apply those to your prediction models? I mean, uh, with technical analysis, how do you how does that affect it if if at all? Because as I understand it, um, you are still pretty, uh, you, you still believe that Bitcoin's gonna go under three thousand before it before it ever rebounds? How how do you how do you put those two together? Sure, uh, Tyler Jenks and myself are both believers and uh, well, believers probably not the best word. Practitioners and uh, like in trust of our ability to read charts with technical analysis. Because it doesn't matter what people say. It only matters what people do. And what people do reflects in the price of that asset. 
Right. So throughout the 2016 and 17 bear market, I can name you infinite amount of bad news that was completely ignored uh, from uh, Bitcoin is going to fork in two. Bitcoin is slow. Bitcoin doesn't work. Uh, people panicking. The Chinese regulators showed up, shut everything down in China. Um, hacks constantly. And uh, none of that mattered. And the price kept going up and up and up and up. And markets eventually top when there's no one willing to buy at that price. And the opposite is also true. The market will eventually bottom when there's nobody to sell at these low prices. And I still think there are plenty of people to panic and sell at these prices. I can, uh, I mean, I, I kind of like these guys, but I know I've been using them a little bit as a, you know, punching bag. And that's uh, people like Mike Novogratz and Tim Draper. Yeah. Uh, Tim Draper famously bought all the Silk Road Bitcoin at about $450. They're probably sitting on hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins bought for their clients at maybe $1,000. Uh, Mike Novogratz, I believe, bought uh, most of his Bitcoin <clears throat> somewhere between three and $4,000. So he's getting very close to that break-even period. And what happens is when you're a money manager and there's pressure on you, there's pressure on you to make money for your clients. And when they're looking at you and why didn't you get out at the top? What are you doing? And uh, well, now your position is in the red. You were up what, 500%? And now you're losing me money on this position? You know, pressure comes from, the, from, from your investors. And if you don't make your investors happy, they're gonna take their money and they're gonna go elsewhere. So I can still see people with lots of Bitcoin panicking and selling. And the news doesn't really matter. It's basically when, the, when there's nobody left to sell and the Bitcoin has migrated uh, to those that believe in it going into the future from the current low prices. And uh, that's, that's pretty much how I see it. Uh, but like I said, at the moment, the charts are somewhat neutral. I actually am using more longer term charts and fundamental analysis to... Uh, to have those low targets. But the last technical analysis target for me has played itself out. Now, if we bounce up to 5,000 and get rejected hard by a moving average in that $5,000 zone, uh, my technical analysis will come back in line with my fundamental view that people have not yet felt the pain uh, of what it's like to be in a true uh, bear market after a bubble uh, because people haven't learned their lesson. Every time I see Bitcoin jump up, uh, you know, 10% or 15%, I see Ethereum go up 30%, 35%. I see Litecoin go up 40%, 50%. I see, th I see things like Ripple, which is a totally useless uh, token. Again, uh, illegal security, if you ask me, my opinion. Uh, that sucker can go up like two, 300%. Until that stops, it tells me fundamentally that people haven't learned what is a blockchain. And until people learn what is a blockchain, I think the entire space is going to continue to go down uh, until people have learned their lesson. So um, I get this question a lot from people because we, you know, we talk 
once in a while we talk about Bitcoin, even on the Wealth Formula podcast, which is on now. And, um, you know, they see these numbers and they're like, well, it's three, four thousand dollars. OK, I'm convinced I want some exposure to this stuff. And, um, you know, I know you're not giving financial advice, but, you know, given what say you didn't own any Bitcoin today, you're not an active trader, but you want to st start getting accumulating some exposure. Um, what would you do right now if you own no Bitcoin, but, you know, wanted to to buy some and hold it over the next five years, would you start volume averaging right now or would you really wait? I mean, would you, would you wait, you know, until you got into sub 3000 numbers? I'd buy it right now. Um, I always tell people the best time to buy Bitcoin was yesterday. Uh, now, uh, now the ideal way to do it is not to just, you know, take a chunk of your money out of other investments and go out and buy Bitcoin. Because if it still drops from here, you're going to be grossly disappointed. Uh, and uh, you got to be real careful. You really want to put in what you're willing to lose. And you have to understand the protocol. Now, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin is if you have a business and you can find a way to slowly just accumulate Bitcoin without it taking a chunk of your financial assets. Uh, here's an example. Uh, my barber. Uh, this is how I should have known uh, my barber. I know I never cared so much about hair now that I cut <laughs> it, but uh, I haven't had one in a while. Can't wait to get back and see my barber. My barber is an old friend of mine. Uh, known him for 15 years now, probably something like that. It's been a while. And uh, he wasn't a barber back then. Only been a barber about five years, maybe. Uh, I started going to him kind of recently. And I should have known it was the top, you know, when your barber calls you up <laughs> frantically trying to buy a Bitcoin from you when the Bitcoin is like $16,000 each. Right. Um, okay, so I did my best. I, I told him it, this is not the time to buy. But hey, if you're going to buy it from somewhere, might as well buy from me. And um, But I convinced him into only buying half a Bitcoin. He really wanted a full Bitcoin which is, again, mentality that I try to get people out of. It's not about having a whole Bitcoin. Everybody wants to hold one Bitcoin. So I talked him out of buying a whole Bitcoin. Uh, but he still wants to get a whole Bitcoin. So how is he going to get his whole Bitcoin? Well, ever since that $16,000, every time I go to him for a haircut, I pay him in Bitcoin. And he doesn't feel it, right? It's just like it's just another haircut in the day. But it's a, it's a fancy haircut, you know, uh, trims are all nice, you know, takes care of my beard, you know, so, and I tip him nice because he's a friend of mine. So whenever I'm around, I try to go to him once a week, once every 10 days. And it's just another client during the week. He doesn't even feel the fact that he's getting, you know, uh, 20, $30 worth of Bitcoin every single week that I'm in town. And after a year or two of that, that starts to accumulate, you know, especially when the price drops. Uh, to these low levels. And that's a way for someone to slowly accumulate Bitcoin and not even feel that, that it's happening. So if you have a business that, you know, you have a lot of clients paying a little bit of money, see if you can squeeze some Bitcoin out of it a little bit so that it doesn't affect your bottom line whatsoever. Uh, and, and that's the best way to slowly accumulate. And then you won't be upset whatever price it goes to. So give me give me uh, your projections for you know the rest of the year, five years, um, or whatever you want. I just I just want to get some idea of 
what do you think the history uh, is going to how this is going to play out and if if you have any sense of the timeline because as you mentioned we've been in winter for a long long time here for over a year yeah yeah so when the bear market started when i declared that bitcoin is going to fall that was in january of 2017 i remember exactly when i went bearish and i went bearish a little bit late uh, people still give me a hard time about not calling the perfect top but that's not what trading is you know that's guessing uh, real trading is money management and um, i called i called the bear market around the second week of january 2017 now i think i did pretty good you know bitcoin was still about $15,000 at the time so that wasn't a bad call and I had my most optimistic price target being 5,000. We've already broken that. My most pessimistic price target was 1,300. And my new, my in-between was 3,000. So we made it to my middle target, uh, but my worst case scenario target was 1,300 and that's still on the table. My time projections were my earliest time was actually like around now, around January, February of this year. That was going to be my earliest time. Uh, my latest time was going to be October, November of this year. Um, so the worst case scenario would be a price bottom at the longest time out, right? So hitting 1300 in October is the worst case scenario on both time and price. Now, after just because the low in price is made, it doesn't mean we're ready to go up. For example, in the 2014 bear market, the low price was in January 6th, like the first week of 2015. Uh, but the market didn't start to go up until like October, November of that year. So just because your low price target gets hit, it doesn't mean the bull market is ready to start. So at the moment, it looks like this bear market is just going to drag and drag and drag. I'm looking right now. I'm looking at a bounce to five thousand dollars, get rejected there, and then go sub three thousand. Now, how fast that's going to happen? Really hard to say. I have a time target of October fifth specifically. It's part of a cyclical pie model uh, made by Martin Armstrong that I applied to Bitcoin. So I really love my October fifth date. Uh, just so people know that this isn't crazy talk. The last two key dates, one of them was August 11th, and it was to the week of the user-activated soft fork that changed the history of Bitcoin for the good. Uh, uh, and that was in August uh, of 2017, uh, August 11th. And the prior target was, I believe, like June 15th or something like that of 2015. They're approximately every two years and a couple of months. And that key date, corresponded to the week of the Greek banking shutdown, which I believe was instrumental in finally reversing the bear market to a bull market of 2015. So I take these time targets very seriously. And the next one coming up is going to be October 5th of 2019. Uh, if that's going to be the bottom in the price of Bitcoin or somewhere in that vicinity, that'd be great. Uh, still long. Doesn't mean that the bull market is going to start. So I'm still looking uh, right now. I'm looking at 5,000, a rejection there, going down sub 3,000. How low we're going to get is hard to say right now. 1,300 is my worst case scenario. 
the most likely scenario is let's say something around 1800 maybe 2200 uh, but so many people are calling for 2200 that I find that very unlikely that, that so many people are going to be right about that one. And um, when the bull market is going to start, who knows? I do think that it should start at the latest early 2020 because the 2020 halving is critical. That's when the new mine Bitcoin gets cut in half and that tends to drive the price up historically. We've already had two for two uh, in this instance. And that's January. So that's pretty much my uh, outlook on things. That's January 2020 uh, in terms of. Uh, no, that's, uh, it's looking more like May, but it's, uh, the, the date is unclear uh, because it's the number of blocks mined. And if, uh, and if a price goes down, hash power comes offline, that slows it down. If the price starts to rise, uh, more miners come online, the hash rate speeds up. So, uh, but right now the projection is around May uh, to June of 2020. Got it. Got it. Well, um, that's uh, I've been watching you, you and Tyler closely because I, I'm I'm interested in in you know accumulating at some point. But I you know I've actually been kind of waiting. Um, you know, based I, I should I should have listened to Tyler. He was on the show, my Consensus Network show just a few days before. Uh, the uh you know the six thousand down to three thousand hit um but uh i kind of held on there but uh, uh got out uh, some of my stuff but anyway i've been wa watching you closely T tell us about your channel um uh, what you're doing where we can find you and then also uh, t talk about this malta event i don't know if it's too late to to get out there or what but and we do have listeners who are in Europe and, and stuff, so it may, may not be that difficult for some of them. Yeah, of course. Uh, so the, also about the, I'll mention the Malta event first. And uh, right, actually right now, we're getting so much interest in that Malta event because so many people are last minute and uh, they're on shore on shore where uh, we had a lot of the speakers turn us down and now some good speakers, not, not the ones that turned us down, but some, some additional good speakers are reaching out to us, looking to speak at the conference. Uh, more people are registering. It's called Understanding Bitcoin. The domain is understandingbtc.com. And there's not going to be any finance at the conference. There's not going to be any regulation at the conference. Uh, the conference is specifically tailored to people that already have Bitcoin. And they, uh, they want to be a more responsible user of Bitcoin. Uh, so what are some of the things we're going to do there? We're going to teach people how to, uh, why and how they need to set up nodes to help decentralize the network. We're going to educate them on the second layer scaling of lightning and why they shouldn't be scared of it and, how, and show them how to use it. We're going to talk about how to protect your private keys. Very important. How to set up those hardware wallets. And uh, it's basically geared towards a better understanding of Bitcoin. We're going to have some panels talking about, uh, you know, what happened last year and why the, uh, the scaling debate went out of control. We're going to talk about the future and what are some of the new projects coming in. We're going to teach people how to use privacy within Bitcoin, uh, which is getting better every day. So it's geared to uh, people already have decided that Bitcoin is interesting to them, uh, but now they want to be uh, a more confident user that helps the network. Uh, so that's why it's called Understanding Bitcoin. And um, you can get, uh, you, for my information, everything is Tone Vase, the Tone Vase YouTube channel, Tone Vase on Twitter. 
uh, tone vase on Instagram, even though I don't really use it that much. Uh, tone vase everywhere, including the website, tonevase.com. It has links to the conferences that I organize, uh, along with a trading educational section, uh, my travel schedule, where I teach workshops to help people be better traders. Uh, all of that you can find at tonevase.com. Fantastic. Uh, again, uh, Tone, thanks so much for being on the show. I will continue to follow you and follow Tyler and um, just uh, keep keep up the good work. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Always glad to be on. And uh, yeah, we'll have to do it again, maybe in less than nine months, because I think that's how long it's been since Bitcoin's been 6,500. Yeah, maybe on October 5th. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be interesting. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Of course, uh, we unfortunately did not get to air this show until Tone's event was already over in Malta, and that is too bad, although I suspect that a lot of us uh, would not have necessarily made the trek to Malta. Um, <laughs> you know, those of us who've, who've got, like, you know, kids and stuff like that and traveling around in Malta real quick. But you know what? It's The cool thing is here... It's the whole thing. The whole thing was uh, live telestreamed for free on YouTube. And, and actually, you can go back on Tonevay's YouTube channel and watch the whole thing for free. Um, frankly, I got to tell you, I am shocked that he's not charging anything for this because, I mean, he's put a lot of time and effort into this event um, and money. And, and, I mean, but the guy, again... Listen, this guy is a Bitcoin evangelist. He believes very much in this. And at the very least, uh, we owe him the uh, the time uh, to listen to what he has to say and what these guys are saying because, again, I think it's really important. Ignoring this will be a mistake. And I'm not just talking about, you know, cryptocurrency bubble in the, or whatever that cryptocurrency takes off in the next few years uh, again and has a huge run. I mean, obviously, Tone doesn't think anything but Bitcoin is is uh, worthwhile anyway. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree 100% on that with him. But anyway, it is an interesting approach. Now, um, again, make sure to check out Tone Vase's YouTube channel. Um, now, changing gears, I want to remind you uh, again that we do have an upcoming Ask Buck show where you can ask me about anything. You can even just make comments, but I do want you to participate. I want this to be part of your experience as well as mine or try to get show involvement. You know, just go, go to wealthformula.com and you'll see a little thing there that says leave a voicemail and that's where you want to leave a question. Um, we have some written questions, of course, but, you know, the verbal ones are kind of cooler. I think it's kind of fun to actually hear your voice. So make sure you go out there and ask some questions and while you're there you'll also see a link that says give us a five-star review on itunes and if you do that i'd be greatly greatly um, indebted to you because i think you know it's those reviews that continue to give us the you know high number of listeners rank and that of course helps us to get continue to get high quality guests on the show with that all said, I will leave you for this week. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. 
As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.